Thank you for joining us today. I want to welcome everyone to the second installment in STS's 2021 webinar series. This series runs every month and features presentations and panel discussions on a variety of topics relevant and important to CT surgeons and the world of CT surgery. The topic for today's session is high impact studies in cardiac surgery, key takeaways. We wanna make this webinar as interactive as possible and hear from you, the audience. To this end, you may utilize the chat feature and enter questions through the Q&A feature in Zoom. The panelists will try to respond to as many questions as possible. Please note this webinar is being recorded and will be available tomorrow morning on the STS website, STS YouTube channel, and the STS Surgical Hot Topics podcast. At this time, I'm pleased to welcome our moderator for this session, Dr. Joe Bavaria. Dr. Bavaria is the Vice Chief of Cardiovascular Surgery and Director of Thoracic Aortic Surgery at the University of Pennsylvania. Dr. Bavaria, let me turn it over to you to introduce our panel. Hello, everybody. I would like to, um, uh, to introduce our panel. Uh, welcome uh, to this uh, first, uh, what really is a, just a review of some key clinical trials. Um, our panel is uh, quite uh, outstanding and, and distinguished. Um, we have Do uh, Dr. Ani Anawahu from, uh, is a professor at, of surgery at Sinai, mitral surgeon and all around very smart guy. Uh, Steve Bowling uh, from the University of Michigan, professor of surgery there. Uh, mitral uh, surgeon extraordinaire and an accomplished uh, innovator in the cardiac surgical space. David Fullerton, past president of the STS and now the executive director of the ABTS uh, and an expert on TAVR as well as ischemia and XL trials. Catherine Harrington, a structural heart and aortic surgeon from Baylor Scott White in Dallas, Texas. Mark Rule, chief of cardiac surgery at the Otto Heart Institute in Canada and an expert in uh, ischemia and XL trials as well as a pat, uh, an editor of the of circulation. Um, and uh, Vino Tarani, a chief of cardiac surgery at Piedmont Heart Institute in Atlanta, is a professor at Georgia Tech. And on the executive committees of both the STS and importantly, the partner family of clinical trials. And lastly, uh, introducing Pavanat Lurie, who's chief of transplant VAD at Penn, as well as a mitral surgeon and chair, importantly, of the STS adult cardiac surgery workforce, which is the sponsoring workforce of this webinar. Uh, Pavan, would you like to say a few words? Yes, thank you, Joe. And thank you for all of you for joining us on this, uh, what hopes to be a very exciting uh, webinar. Uh, on behalf of the workforce on adult cardiac surgery, uh, I, I would like to welcome you all to this webinar series. Our hope with this series is that we are able to digest and break down uh, many of the key papers that have been released in our field and, uh, and give you key takeaways and key points on how uh, these findings and these papers influence practice and uh, hopefully make it more relevant to your day-to-day -day practices. So with that, I'll hand it back to Joe. Thank you, uh, Pavan. So uh, this is just a journal club. It's, uh, it's gonna be a freewheeling uh, exercise. Uh, and um, uh, we're gonna speak about four big trials uh, uh, covering you know, what we do every day uh, for a living. So our first uh, trial, uh, Wesley, if you can give me the slide. So our first uh, uh, discussion is gonna be on the ischemia trial uh, and the coronary, uh, uh, coronary bypassing uh, in, in general. This was first presented by uh, Judith Hockman uh, at, uh, at the AHA in Philadelphia uh, about a year and a half ago. Uh, next slide. Uh, and then was published just recently in the New England Journal of Medicine about, a, about one year ago. Next slide. 
Uh, and if uh, to to summarize, uh, and I'll have our experts uh, comment on this. Uh, this was a trial at 320 sites in 37 countries, the, uh, the 5,200 patients. The mean age of entry was about 64, most of them male, a lot of diabetics, about 42%, and had an average follow-up of 3.2 years, but out to five years. Uh, and uh, what it was really looking at was an invasive strategy uh, versus a conservative strategy, uh, and looked at a primary outcome of composite of CV death, myocardial infarction, or hospitalization for angina, CHF, or cardiac arrest. So uh, with that, uh, uh, next slide. So for everybody on the, on the uh, trial, I mean, on the line, what does the ischemia trial mean for us? What do these results mean for us as cardiovascular uh, surgeons? Uh, next slide. Uh, so this is a kind of a, a caveat slide that I uh, put together, or actually Mark Rule put together that I wanted to put up. Mark, why don't you tell us a little bit about what this slide means and what the ischemia trial means to you? Well, thank you, Joe, and thanks for the invitation. I think it's really important that surgeons understand the ischemia trial because you can't really have a heart team discussion without being well aware of what the trial is about and what its caveats are. It's not a trial that compared to revascularization versus medical burn. We have many of those going back to the classic Lancet Salim Yusuf meta-analysis that was published in 1994 that essentially established a modern indications for cavity. So ischemia did not compare revascularization to medical therapy and even less did it compare cabbage to medical therapy. Although the lay press and many people who don't really understand the trial will try to make you believe that it did. There was actually a New York Times headlines going about ischemia and saying, surgery for blocked arteries is often unwarranted researchers find. So that is totally the wrong conclusion. Let's go back a little bit to the basis of ischemia. So there was an invasive, there was an invasive, initial invasive strategy group, and there was an initial conservative group. So that's just the initial strategy. In the invasive group, more people got medical therapy alone than actually received bypass surgery, 21% versus 20%, and about 60% received PCI. However, I think one can state that cabbage was underutilized because there was actually 71% of patients in that group who had multivessel CAD and about 42% who had diabetes. So I think it's fair to say, although this was left to the local heart team to determine what they would get, medical therapy, PCI versus cabbage, I think it's safe to say that cabbage was grossly underutilized. Therefore, the conclusion should not be more than what the paper is about, what the trial is about, which is a strategy of waiting to perform angiography in patients with moderate to severe ischemia is as good as proceeding right away with it at 3.2 at years, and that's it. It's not revascularization not being as good as optical, optimal medical therapy. Very, very good. Uh, David, do you have any comments? Got David, you're on, you're on mute. Yeah, thank you. you. Thanks, Joe. I, I can only echo the points that Mark has made. Um, and it's important, um, you know, to understand, as, as Mark has pointed out, that in the kind of uh, aggressive strategy, if you will, the vast majority of those people got PCI. And whether or not they should have gotten cabbage instead is, is unknown. And so right off the bat, I think that's a significant limitation to the study. The other thing to be aware of is as we as surgeons look at all of these trials, um, whether we like it or not, it's important to pay attention to the definition of procedural MI. 
because that definition changes from one study to the next. And in the vast majority of these trials, um, that, that definition is, is going to determine a significant difference from one group to the next. And yet if you change the definition, the results look very different. So it's, it's important to, to pay attention to that as we look at any of these trials going forward. Uh, I'd like to uh, come back to that a little bit, uh, David. Uh, before we go to Vino with his hand up, can we go to the next slide, please? Okay, so this is the central illustration uh, of the ischemia trial, just uh, for the audience uh, to be able to focus on. Uh, Vino, what are your thoughts? So, I mean, I agree with what Mark, uh, first of all, Joe and, and Pablo, it's a great idea to do this. Thank you so much for inviting us. Um, you know, I agree with what Mark and David have said, and, you know, it I'm not sure how this has affected cardiac surgery nearly as much as it has cardiac, uh, for cardiology, because we're, we weren't getting some of these patients, they, they were going to PCIs, and I think that there's a, maybe a trickle-down effect for us, but I'm not, it hasn't affected my personal practice as much, and I, I'm interested in if we've seen any fallout from this. From, from the other guys that are doing coronary surgery or, or from Catherine. But I mean, you know, from this, you look at this and you start to think, you know, the crossover, Joe, that we've seen for everything for um, is around three years. And here we're seeing that crossover three years for conservative strategies, you know, um, with, with, a, uh, with having, um, even though it's not significant at point three, you start to see that maybe at 10, 10 years it will. And you can see the cumulative incidence of other primary composite outcomes is starting to grow after about two and a half years here or so. So we're seeing this over and over again. But you know, one of the questions I had from Mark and David is um, coronary, that's coronary angiography. A lot of our stuff now is being done by CT. And is this, is this can you take that same perception that you have for coronary that you do for CT now, which is a lot, a little bit less invasive as, as coronary angiography. Do you, do you believe this, those results hold up the same for running somebody through a scanner versus an angiogram? That's a great question, Vino. And I think that data is coming out. I know uh, uh, without revealing anything more that the sub-studies are, are happening with regards to the extent of plaque, the extent of the stenosis on CT versus the actual amount of ischemia on non-invasive imaging. So, so I think there's a, there's a lot to, uh, to soon come our way with regards to that. And, and your, your point is very well taken. I just want to add, I think it's important to know about ischemia. I don't think we should dismiss it. I'm not even sure that these curves are going to separate at five years because let's remember the long-term data of Courage, of Barry 2D, of Fame 2. Essentially, it's very hard to show an advantage for PCI over medical therapy in stable ischemic heart disease and even less so in patients with diabetes. And 42% of patients in ischemia had diabetes and 71% at multivessel disease. So I would have expected at least 40% of these patients to have received cabbage, yet the proportion was only 20%. So we have to make sure that this does not invalidate the well-established indications for cabbage that our patients benefit from, and yet uh, it doesn't lead to missed opportunities to save lives. Yeah, and just I to, sorry. Annie, go ahead. Yeah, just to address Vino's point, Vino, most of these patients did have cardiac CT scans. That was part of the trial protocol to exclude left main disease. So we can't carry it away and say patients don't need angiography. They need some form of angiography because if they have left main disease, then there is a prognostic value of repascarization. Because the issue here is that for three vessel disease, 
studies have shown time and time again that revascularization doesn't have prognostic benefit, especially if the LB function is normal. But I think the question looking at this central illustration is to ask ourselves, why do patients have coronary revascularization? By and large, the main presenting, presenting symptom for these patients was angina. They were getting chest pain. So they were not having surgery to or PCI or the angiography to avoid death or myocardial infarction. Indeed, if you look at it, the myocardial infarction rate at, at five years was just over 10%. The death rate was just over 10%. <clears throat> so for the majority of patients, the benefit doesn't lie in either death or myocardial infarction. And the key endpoint here, which is not being considered is quality of life. Yeah. Yeah. And the real question should be what happened to the quality of life in the patients where angiography was delayed and those in which it wasn't yeah. delayed. I agree with that, Ani, 100%. Yeah, Steve, quickly. Hey, Joe, I just uh, want to reinforce what David said as some of the old guys on this panel here today, which I think is a great uh, thing that we've done. This is, the, you know, I was a Barry trial investigator, and it, the definition of myocardial infarction, perioperative myocardial infarction, in the trial, we have to be very careful when we read these trials because it can yeah. skew the answer one way or the other. It's very right. Important. I'm going to come back to that real quick because uh, we can't stay to this area. Can, uh, next, next slide. So, regarding another point, next slide. Uh, I found this to be very interesting when I looked at the conclusions in the uh, New England Journal of Medicine. The trial findings were sensitive to the definition of myocardial infarction that was used. So there you go, um, uh, and that will be a lead into the next slide. Which yeah, is that's, the XL a, that's trial. such a kumbaya thing, Joe. That's such a kumbaya thing to say. Come on, I mean, that, you got they got to have better. I mean, this is New England. What kind of what kind of sentence is that in New England okay. Journal of Medicine, man? Seriously. So, uh, so uh, the XL trial. I don't want to get into the XL trial, but it was a definitional issue as well. Uh, so, uh, real quickly, uh, David, do you want to say a little bit about this definitional issue and how it applies to ischemia as well as XL? We've only got about two or three minutes before we got to go to the next section. Well, it's uh, so very briefly from the thousand foot view, if I would advise everyone to scrutinize whatever definition is used in a given trial and compare it to definitions in other trials. And what you'll find is that the definition fluctuates. And as Steve has pointed out in the Berry trial, that was a, an excellent example of the impact uh, of the definition of MI as you try to compare the results of PCI and cabbage in particular. And so in the Excel trial, they, they chose a particular definition that, that some considered far more, um, far more favorable to PCI than to cabbage. So without getting into that discussion, if one assumes that to be the case, then right off the bat, you can see how the two groups are going to separate immediately, uh, which they did. But if you modify the definition of myocardial, procedural myocardial infarction using the data of the Excel trial, the curves are virtually superimposable uh, with a perhaps advantage to cabbage. And regardless of the definition, however, what doesn't come out in the Excel trial is that if you evaluate the data using Bayesian analysis, there's a clear advantage survival-wise um, for cabbage. Um, and so anyway, I would sum it up by saying the definition is extremely important. It will influence the outcome of the data. 
if you're a really shrewd trialist, you can set things up in a trial at the front end to favor one group or another pending the definition you use. And so we, we just simply need to be aware of that as we read the literature. Yeah. Along okay. those lines, David, I think it's also important that we come back to also what Mark said earlier, which is don't forget the prior literature, right? I mean, a lot of people are looking at ischemia and as Mark said, forgetting about Barry and forgetting about all our other trials that were very carefully done in subselective cohorts to look at individual patient groups with comorbidities. So. But, but Bowman, it's important for surgeons who are on these trial executive committees to speak up and make sure that the definitions have a balance in that, because you're right, David, if you're not shrewd enough and you're just kind of listening to the calls, but not really paying attention, this will skate right by it. Mm -hmm. We have to make sure that our surgeons who are doing these trials are really spending some energy and some some really hard work and making sure that it, it's it's balanced, not one way or the other. Yeah, good point. Good point. There's one thing that's important for us to remember. So wrap it up, Mark, in one minute. Yeah, double counting. <laughs> double counting is the issue here. The sky definition that was used in Excel was used because it was predictive of death and poor outcomes in MACE. But those are already included in the primary composite outcome of the trial. And very few actually happen after the 30 days after the enzymatic release from cabbage. So it really doesn't make any sense. It's, it's a form of double, double counting. And you can't argue with 30% less odds of death in the cabbage versus PCI group. Without even a Bayesian analysis, as you can see here, that confidence interval is statistically significant with a very small p-value, way less than 0.05. However, you cannot find it in new and journal paper. All right, well, this is very interesting. Okay. Um, Next slide. So now we're gonna turn our, uh, and, I, and I just wanna say about the ischemia and XL trials, uh, I, I speak for the STS in a sense that uh, one of our, our goals and duties uh, for our membership of, of uh, across the world is, is to make sure that we try to um, take these trials uh, and uh, make them as easy to understand as possible uh, and, uh, and to check the nuances, so to speak. Okay, so our second big, uh, uh, trial here that we're going to be going over uh, is are the low-risk TAVR trials and, and especially look at the uh, the new two-year data of the P3 uh, uh, low-risk trial. So we'll start off by looking at the one-year data uh, from the P3 trial. This was in the New England Journal of Medicine, next. And it showed basically, uh, 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 as you can see here, 454 patients, there are 500 patients in each arm. Uh, and what it showed is that one year uh, TAVI uh, was considerably uh, better uh, at the, the uh, composite endpoint of death, stroke, and rehospitalization um, compared to surgery. And you can see most of that issue was, uh, was in the very first uh, uh, six months, as you can see, uh, the, the lines are fairly parallel after that, which we can get into later. Uh, next slide. Now, also, just real quickly, this is the low-risk trial uh, from Medtronic uh, for the Evolute. Next and basically what it showed was uh, at 12 months and 24 months, there wasn't a whole lot of patients at 24 months, but the, bo but the bottom line was this was uh, uh, statistically not significant between TAVR and surgery uh, for low-risk cases uh, in this New England Journal paper. Next. Which brings us now to the two-year clinical outcomes of the Partner 3 low-risk randomized trial. Next. Now, this, uh, uh, this paper was presented at the ACC about a year ago and was published just recently uh, in, uh, in Jack. Uh, next. So what it showed uh, at two years was that gradients were stable and actually better uh, for SAVR a little bit, even though it was not statistically significant. 
which is the first time actually that's ever been shown. It was. It was significant. It yeah. was significant. Oh, yeah. yeah. P, P is 0 0.001. I'm sorry. Yeah. You're right. Yeah. Next, next slide. Yeah, not clinically significant. Yeah. Basically, uh, there was no paraviral leaks in the, in the uh, SAVR group, uh, as is usual, and about a mild paraviral leak of 26% uh, in the uh, at two years in the TAVR group. Next. But the most important slide is this slide, which again showed a p-value of 0 0.02 favoring uh, uh, TAVR. Uh, and then next slide, next push. Uh, you can see that this uh, completely narrowed up with a p-value of 0.47 uh, at the two-year mark. Uh, uh, and uh, if you look at a landmark analysis, it would be pretty amazing if you started it at three months. Uh, next, next. So the question for the panel and for everybody on the on the line is uh, low risk TAVR trials, especially the two year P3. What do these results mean for the global STS membership? Uh, next slide. So this is the uh, next and next and next. Uh, this is the central illustration. So I'd like to start off uh, with this with Catherine Harrington. Catherine, what are your thoughts about the P3 two year data set? Yes, thank you. And thank you, uh, uh, Joe and Pavan, for having me. So I think um, uh, this shows that, um, you know, TAVR is not yet um, the panacea and ready for prime time. We as surgeons should still strongly advocate for surgery until, especially in our younger patients, until this has a proven durability. Um, as you can see, the curves are starting to uh, converge. And if you even look at the, the P2 five-year data, they're starting to converge uh, even more. I think TAVR is certainly a great uh, technology, especially for our older patients, but I think we should still have a fair amount of caution in using it in uh, patients in their 60s and below. And okay. similar to what we looked at the ischemia trial, the uh, the definitions of the trial and the trial strategy certainly matters. I think adding rehospitalization uh, to the uh, P3 data certainly um, uh, favors TAVR, as we all know. Surgical patients have a couple of bounce backs in the that are perhaps not clinically significant for thoracentesis or fluid overload that might not matter uh, several months or years down the road. Yeah, that's interesting. I actually uh, think that the rehospitalization uh, uh, endpoint um, will favor TAVR in the short term. As you can see here, it's obvious. However, um, uh, it might actually uh, be a be an issue uh, for the for the TAVR. Uh, cohort later on. Uh, uh, Joe, maybe I can be the devil's advocate to Catherine's great point, and, and I want to hear Vino on this. Like, TAVR is still ahead of Saber at two years, right? And although that's mostly driven by hospitalizations, I guess what you're saying, Catherine, is could this be like the cabbage versus PCI trials, that mm -hmm. the, one, the more that one follows up, the more surgery gets ahead, right? But I think yeah, it's different here. Cabbage versus PCI is biologically extremely different. Here is the if these prostheses hold up, they should be okay in the long term. I mean, if you can avoid upfront morbidities and strokes and et cetera, and the valves, the prostheses are good, uh, then I'm, I don't know if it's going to catch up. Uh, I'm not be... sorry. Yes, so, uh, uh, yeah, well, first let's let's let Catherine uh, answer, answer yeah. real quick uh, for a, a, a few seconds. Go ahead, Catherine. Uh... I would say I, I don't think that um, once the valve is in, they're essentially equivalent. You know, the the um, there's the issue of halt with the TAVR valves. Uh, there might be some more increased risk of thrombosis with these leaflets, just because the leaflets are made of the same um, material. I think not removing the native valve, the calcium around it, it does mess with the flow patterns. I think you still have a higher, possibly might have a higher risk of stroke and and thrombosis, sleep at thrombosis because the 
the uh, flow patterns around the leaflets are different, even though they're made of the same materials. So certainly the procedural uh, outcomes are equivalent. Um, and, and if you're 80 and you want a quick recovery, I think it's an excellent technology. But if you're looking for uh, long-term um, uh, durability, I don't think we have that answer yet. It certainly might be the same, but um, I have some concerns about the TAVR durability with the thrombosis and the and seems like the strokes are slowly catching up as well. Um, whether that's left over from the native valve or the, the leaflet thrombosis, we'll have to see. So here, you know, Catherine, I, uh, Joe, can I comment? Yeah, Vino, comment. And then I'd also like you to comment, Vino, specifically, since you're on the uh, committee, you know, the executive committee of the partner trials and you're an author of this paper, um, what uh, is also driving uh, the, the, the stepwise ladder between years one and two on, in the TAVR group? That's yeah. yeah, Joe, I think, first of all, I think, this this makes it a lot harder, quite honestly. And to Mark's point a little bit, if TAVR is non-inferior to surgery, it's going to win. Okay. So just because it's a less invasive technique, I think what's going to be really important, I'm not sure I get too much information from year one to year two. I think it's going to be for low risk patients. I think it's going to be year three, year four, and year five. If the graphs, if you see the blue line after two years continue to go up and the yellow stays standstill, then I think Catherine has some points. If this is the end of it between year one and year two, and you've seen that rise in death and disabled stroke and it, and it plateaus there, like surgery, it plateaued a little bit earlier, then I think that TAVR is going to win. I have to be honest with you, because if, again, non-inferior goes to the technology that doesn't allow you to open your chest up. Absolutely. So I, think, you know, I think that year three and four are going to be the really the critical things. I don't think any side has won at this point. I think it's right now a crapshoot yeah. as far as what's going on, as far as that goes. So that's that part of it. And what's driving most of the stuff from year one to year two is you are seeing some increasing thrombus stuff from year one to year two. You are seeing a little bit more strokes in the, the TAVR population um in year one year two and that's what's causing a lot of that it's not necessarily rehospitalizations and things like that um the difference is, is that when you see some of this svd structural valve deterioration the therapy for that is another valve and valve and that has a very low morbidity and mortality the morbidity for having a surgical valve breakdown is mainly through endocarditis and that's a high mortality because you have to reoperate on those patients so i think the jury's out i don't think anybody has won but it now at least Gives us a little pause between year one and year two, Joe. You know, I will say this. I agree. I agree with you completely. Um, but, but, but here's my one concern, right? <laughs> is uh, in the low risk patient population that we're at two years now on the TAVR data and we're seeing a concerning trend. I agree. We don't know where it's going to go. But those of us, you know, are in clinic and most of hopefully people on the webinar. And if you see young patients, and I don't necessarily define um, patients in their 40s, but I'm also including patients in their 60s and potentially early 70s. Yeah, this is 73. The mean age, Joe, show for low risk, 73 is the mean age. Just remember. Right. So, and then if you, we've got data long term on surgical aortic valve replacement out to 20 years. So oh, listen, that data is not adjudicated. That data is not randomized. Their echoes are not done in a good way. You have to throw some of that stuff away. <laughs> All right. I agree with that. Vino, Vino, I think that you did the most important uh, point I got from what you just said is 
the dangers, given that this is a journal club, of using the wrong endpoints in a clinical study, because that's what Dr. Bavaria showed clearly. Yeah. The one-year study was published, and based on that study, the CMS uh, approval for, for transcatheter valve replacement changed. The guidelines changed, which we're going to go through in the next discussion. Yep. Yep. So class one recommendations were made based on that 12-month study. And the 24-month study, as Dr. Bavaria showed very clearly, has shown a totally different result from the 12-month study. Mm-hmm. And you, you have summarized it well, Vino, saying that we don't know the answer. And the question is, if we don't know the answer, how come practice changed based on an inadequate study with the wrong outcomes? Because even if you look at the low-risk Medtronic trial, it was non-inferior. So at non-inferior, if it was inferior, I think that... No, no but, but, but Vino, as you said, the problem is the wrong time point. It's not... Yeah. The problem is, where, as you said, we won't know yet. We don't know. And we will know in about three, four, five years' time. Yeah, I think we'll know in two years, Ani. I oh, in we'll two years. In two but, years. Yep. So why why would the guidelines change? Because and why would we change our practice based on an inadequate study that we all know is measuring the wrong outcome? Well, okay. okay, guys, so just hold on for a minute. So we actually got a few questions from the world here. Uh, oh, and yeah. I'd, like to, I'd like to throw some of these questions at you. Um, and um, so if one of them is what we're talking about a little bit. For a low-risk patient, shouldn't we be waiting for 10-year data or, or, or you know, certainly longer than one or two-year data? I totally agree. I, I couldn't believe the FDA actually gave this as a, two, as a one-year data point. I thought they would go two years like they did for the intermediate trials. However, uh, so let's, let's roll that question in there with, um, uh, with the, uh, uh, let's see here. How long are the partner studies planning on following patients, Dr. Tarani? 10 years. The answer to that question is 10 years. Uh, and um, so can you answer quick, quickly about the question about, you know, should we be making decisions on, you know, two-year data for this, for low-risk patients? So I, I think that's a, you know, it, it's very difficult. Like Pavan said, we see all these patients there. Everybody wants a TAVR, but that's not the right answer every time. You know, the heavy bicuspids. I think that this is going to be a local heart team, what their outcomes are for surgery. And Joe, just to let you know, if you do 1 to 25 AVRs a year, you have a threefold higher mortality. Okay, for surgeons, you have a threefold higher mortality than what the STS predicts. So every surgeon out there is not doing the same level of work as, you know, uh, different surgeons. So I think that there's some balance that we have to look at this. But I would say that it's going to have to be with your heart team for your capabilities with surgery, your capabilities with TAVR, your outcomes in both, how, and also where the patient fits in and what they want as far as that whole aspect. But you have to be honest with them and you have to tell them this data. You can't just say, you got to give them, I tell them two-year data. I don't tell them one-year data, Joe. I tell them two-year data. One-year data is history. Um, yeah. So, David Fullerton, oh, you're the wise one. What do you think about this? The wisest. <laughs> well, I don't know about that, but I, I, I'd like to emphasize the point Ani made. And that is, what you know, if you look, this is a composite outcome that's driven by, by readmission, right? But, it, but the implications drawn or the conclusions drawn from the study are focused on the efficacy of the therapy in terms of treating aortic stenosis. I would personally argue that um, it's inappropriate to include readmissions as an important aspect of a composite outcome. 
And in fact, if you remove that, suddenly these lines are superimposable for the first year. And for years one to two, the blue line is now higher than the yellow line. So it gets back to the point that we emphasized earlier in making sure that when these trials get set up, that the definitions that go into these composite outcomes are not going to immediately bias the results in one direction or another, which personally, I think this has done. So here, I'll, I'll, I'll address this to Catherine Harrington because this is a, a question from the audience again, I think from Europe. Uh, and uh, it says, interestingly, P3 two-year data shows less gradients for AVR. Uh, will this matter uh, in a V&V &V or valve and valve strategy later on? I do think that um, you know one of the good things about Taver is that it has pushed us to kind of surgically up our game. Um, so we have focused a lot more on root enlargements and getting a, a, a better prosthesis in. Um, so uh, I also don't think valve and valve is really uh, ready for prime time. That's only still approved for high risk. It is not yet approved for intermediate or low risk. But um, now that we've been doing TAVRs, I think most of us surgeons are a lot more focused on the index operation, trying to set them up for a, a second um, valve and valve, if we possibly can. Catherine, when you say valve and valve, you mean taver and taver or taver and saver? Because yeah. taver and saver is no. Enough size. I, I meant taver and saver because he was talking about the the surgical gradients for the 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 surgical arm. So setting them up for a, a taver and saver, which I really don't think is ready for prime time yet. Um, but uh, we're still. I mean, there's no reason not to at least try to maximize your your platform for that if that's where it's going to be in ten years. Okay, um, so uh, one more question from the, att from the att attendees. Uh, with the younger patients and low-risk patients, um, uh, again, this is about a valve and valve issue, uh, but uh, I suppose what they're trying to say is, uh, in, in younger patients, um, do you think the valve and valve operation would be uh, better or worse uh, in a TAVR versus a SAVR? Uh, Vino or Dave? So uh, maybe I don't understand this exactly. You're talking about is it better to have a, uh, a tavern inside a saver or a tavern inside another tavern? Correct. That's the so question. It depends on the size. This is where size matters. Joe, you, you know, you know, you talk about that. Maybe that doesn't matter, but it does matter. Size <laughs> matters here. If you put in a surgeon puts in a 21 valve, that tavern valve in the saver ain't gonna do very good. Okay. If you put a 23 sapien three in or a smaller, you know. Corval, then that tavern tavern is not going to do great. So I think it depends on the size of what it is. Surgeons really need to put in 23 valves, root and large as much as you can. Uh, and I think that's really what's going to matter. I don't think we have any data. We don't have any data on what's better down the road, but we do know that it can't be in a small valve at the initial surgery. That's the killer. Yeah. Okay. Don't forget our new technology that's out there um, with surgical valves that have expandable cages either. You know, there's, there's other ways to think about this hybrid approach. And I'd also caution people in terms of getting too young in terms of the hybrid approach and don't forget about the mechanical valve. Yes. Uh, it's turning into a bigger and bigger battle talking to, to patients about long-term survival and the benefits of mechanical valves. But I think as surgeons, we owe it to our patients to have that conversation. Joe, can I just one one comment that I just wanted to tell uh, David because you asked about this. If you look at death by itself, David, surgery is two point uh, three point two. Mm -hmm. Just surgery is three point two, 
and uh, TAVRs 2.4. Right. So that's just death. Take out hospitalization. Take out stroke. Yeah. There's there 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 there's 0.47 is the actual p value for that. So at that point, I would say at two years, death only is still non inferior for both. So that's why I think it makes a difference. So it's not just hospitalization. The graphs look superimposable with a little bit of change of numbers for even death at this point. Okay. Well, we'll have to see how things go. Um, one of the uh, the uh, attendees is talks about. Uh, about uh, cardiac surgeons, cardiologists, and the guidelines regarding this. And I think this will be a nice segue into the guidelines uh, uh, discussion. So let's go to the next slide into the third session or the third segment of this. Um, of this. So let's uh, talk about with this August panel I have here, uh, the, uh, the new guidelines that came out, uh, which are quite interesting. And there's a lot of new valve uh, uh, situations with the guidelines. Uh, next slide. So let's, let's take a look at the aortic and BAV guidelines. I think we can only spend about three or four minutes on each one of these, so we'll try to be tight. Uh, next slide. So this is the guidelines uh, about uh, intervention. So I think uh, uh, about timing of intervention. So uh, the first thing I wanted to look at, uh, uh, look at the areas is, uh, is uh, you know, severe, low flow, low gradient, severe AS. That's a new, that's a new uh, guideline, which is a one. Uh, looking at, at uh, low flow, low gradient, severe yes, uh, with AVR uh, uh, recommendation. And then if you look at the 2A indications, uh, there's uh, indications about uh, looking at a, in asymptomatic patients, and these are actually a lot of asymptomatic situations, with severe, uh, very severe AS uh, as uh, uh, looking at asymptomatic at a five meter per second, that's new. So using that uh, velocity uh, uh, to uh, utilize a 2A indication for AVR. Uh, also the use of, of um, uh, B, uh, BMP, which I thought was pretty interesting at only three times the level. I, I don't do that and I think I might start doing that uh, as well as uh, looking at a kind of a, a consistent uh, increase in velocity of only 0.3 meters per second per year, which I think in my clinic anyway happens quite a bit. So I suppose to start off with, uh, maybe Ani uh, can talk uh, about this first, about the uh, uh, intervention. Anything new, any comments regarding the timing uh, of intervention in the AS guidelines? Ani? Um, no comments so far, now. Okay. Anybody else? Yeah, I think the BNP, I think that biomarkers, show are going to become more important. And, you know, in one of the trials, the early TAVR study, which is on asymptomatic patients, not in surgery, but in asymptomatic patients for medical therapy versus, versus TAVR, um, every patient is getting blood drawn. And I think that we're going to start learning a lot more about asymptomatic aortic stenosis and how to gauge when to do something with these patients based on these biochemical markers. I think, I think this will become a bigger issue or bigger pathway for us down the road. I agree. And, uh, you know. Hey, Joe, if I could just comment, I think in heart See, failure yeah. and, and mitral regurgitation, I think biomarkers, I don't know if it's going to be BNP, but I think we're going to see a lot of influence on biomarkers moving the patients to therapy early. Yeah. I think that's an important change we'll see very relatively soon. Maybe they'll come up with an ASNP, aortic stenosis, you know, peptide or something like that. 
So yeah, if you guys the, remember, the reality though, Steve, is most patients with elevated biomarkers will not be asymptomatic. So I Correct. suspect you might get to that, but if you exercise these patients or do something more functional, you'll find that if your BMP is three times normal, that you're not asymptomatic. So Andy, you know what, Ani, I don't is, know if we have an update on that yet. There's no, that's what, Ani, that's a, I think that's what the early TAVR study is specifically looking at. We don't have data on that. And that's what they're looking at, exactly what, what you're saying that we don't have data on. Sorry, we, well, don't that's have, also we, we, we don't have data and it's in the guidelines. Well, <laughs> no, I see that that's probably going to be the theme for the next 15 yeah. minutes is no, no, I, no I, data, I, data free <laughs> guidelines. Consensus. Maybe, maybe it's a consensus, honey. Yeah, honey, along the same lines, you know, I think 0.7 here is important. And it's also uh, interesting that now in the era of AS, you know, traditional teachings, chest pain, um, syncope, and um, uh, chest pain, syncope, and, di and dyspnea on exertion, the moment you have those symptoms, we start intervening. I think it's very interesting that we're starting to get into the asymptomatic world with AS more and more. Though I do, along the same lines of the biomarkers, wonder if you've got a patient with an aortic velocity rate of five meters per second, I'm not sure they're asymptomatic. No, I agree with that. I think the main thing here is, is that- the key here. That's really the key, like the asymptomatic patients that's derived from the Kang trial in, in South Korea. And I think the, the other important point here is that it's really surgical AVR, right? Because that does not apply to TAVI. We cannot overgeneralize this to TAVI because in TAVR trials, all patients were symptomatic with a gradient of 40. So this is ready for surgical AVR in low-risk patients. Yeah, I think the big picture uh, for the audience regarding the, uh, the timing in, of intervention for AS is are the nuances uh, in asymptomatic patients, the, the three arrow, the four arrows I have there are all brand new uh, indications, um, and they're all kind of related to these nuances about asymptomatic AS and when to operate. So that's kind of a kind of a cool thing, I think. Yeah. Okay, let's go to the next uh, the next uh, thing. So this is looking at mechanical versus bioprosthetic valves, and if you see my red box, the the uh, the left side is pretty much the same as it's always been. The the red box though is basically segmenting these, uh, these uh, out into age. Uh, so 50 years or less, mechanical. 50 to 65, either, either way, talk to the patient. Greater than 65, tissue valves. Any comments from the audience? Uh, Catherine, do you have anything you wanna say about, or tell the audience about, uh, about this particular recommendation? Because this is a little bit different than it was before. It was, it was segmented only into greater than 60 and less than 60 mm -hmm. in the previous guidelines. Yeah, I like these, these new guidelines. This is about what I do clinically. I say under 50, I strongly push mechanical over 60, 65. And then in the, in the middle, do a shared decision-making. Um, I do think, you know, if there's an ongoing trial for the Onyx cell right now with Eliquis, if that is positive, it's going to change the ballgame as well. Um, there was that New England Journal of Medicine paper from Stanford that showed there was a survival benefit uh, 55 and under for mechanical valves. So like other people have said, I, I think we shouldn't forget about mechanical valves. They are, um, they can be, uh, provide a better lifetime uh, mortality risk compared to TAVR or SAVR. Um, and then down there at the bottom, there was a recent uh, Ross paper in New England Journal of Medicine that showed excellent outcomes at 15 years, 92% lack of reintervention for the autograft and 97 for the homograft. So um, our center has stayed a strong Ross uh, proponent and we do um, a fair amount. So for people under 50 who refuse a mechanical, we, we also push them strongly to the Ross procedure. 
I think if you're going to open someone's chest now, not you got really got to make it worth their bang for their buck. If a, if we think a, a surgical bioprosthetic and a tabard bioprosthetic are going to be equivalent, if their chest is going to get open, we got to give them um, a better option. Yeah, as an aortic root surgeon, I would agree uh, with that, uh, that the Ross procedure is making a comeback and, and is pr a very nice operation in certain patient subs subsets. Uh, we're doing Ross's, uh, we're rediscovering Ross's as well. As you can see, I'm, I've got enough gray hairs where I was doing a whole bunch of them in the 90s and early 2000s, uh, and I'm doing them again. Uh, so this is actually the first time that the Ross procedure has been in the uh, guidelines yeah. for quite a while. So that's a, a new thing. Um, any other comments from the group about uh, bioprosthetic versus mechanical? Yeah, Joe, so this is Mark. I think we have to be very, very careful here. This is largely based on expert opinion on a number of observational studies, a number of registries with selective reporting. This huge confounding indication in allocating whether someone gets a mechanical valve versus a bioprosthetic valve, including the huge specter of endocarditis. I think to me, it's still about patient preference. I was trying to say earlier uh, during the animated discussion, I've changed actually my consent process. Patients who don't want to be anticoagulated and don't want reoperation, all these young patients that we all have, I've actually changed my consent. If I can get a 23 or 25 or larger, they're going to get a bioprosthesis. But if I cannot get that in easily, including with root enlargement, then it, they get a mechanical valve. And that's kind of how I consent my 50-year-olds and my 40-year-olds yeah. now who need this. And I stay, I still stay away from the Ross procedure because yeah. there's a lot Mark, of- Mark, Mark I'm right. At a Ross who are not part of the registry reports, right? Yeah, Mark, I'm right on that with that also. I do have a deal with the patients that if I can't get a uh, 23 or 25, I'll put a mechanical valve in them. So I do have kind of a, you you might wake up with one or the other yeah. um, valves. And, and, and patients are quite okay with that, uh, totally. honestly. That's an important uh, part about the heart team decision. We do that where even um, our younger patients who are probably going to get a surgical valve go through our valve clinic and get the TAVR CT. So we know exactly yeah. the size of the annulus ahead of time. And I think that really helps with uh, decision making for that. Certainly there are times where the annual size will push us towards a mechanical compared to um, yeah. Catherine, my so surgical, a, all my patients get a uh, TAVR CT yeah, also. Mine too. So it's very a, helpful. Yeah, that's pretty much standard of care. Here's a, uh, a, a question from the audience, which I thought was, it's, it's a little, uh, little snarky maybe, but uh, are these, are these biomarkers intended to get patients to TAVR earlier or to SAVR earlier or both? <laughs> so the trials, the early TAVR trial does not include surgery. It is, it is a patient comes in, uh, they get a stress test. If they fail the stress test, then they go to TAVR. They're not symptomatic. They're, they're, they're symptomatic, not asymptomatic. And if they pass the stress test and they get randomized to medical follow-up, continued medical follow-up versus TAVR, surgery is not a part of that. Um, the national PIs are two cardiologists and no surgery. Well, I think uh, the answer to the question is, uh, you know, is probably uh, both, that um, these, uh, these nuances that were presented in the previous slide will probably get patients in, asymptomatic patients in uh, to both uh, uh, sets of uh, yeah. uh of, of, of treatments. And they're not okay, in the let's, yeah. let's go to the next slide. So this is uh, SAVR versus TAVR. And I thought this was interesting uh, because the bottom line with this uh, is that, uh, you know, we've always been thinking about, uh, for, this is for the audience, that so we've always been thinking about high risk, intermediate risk, and low risk. Well, it seems to me uh, that the guidelines committee kind of chucked that whole uh, concept and basically went with age. Uh, and as you can see in the box, uh, 
it's uh, this was interesting. Basically, they said Savers recommended no ifs, ands, or buts about it if you're less than 65, or if you have a life expectancy over 20 years, which is interesting because uh, if you look at the at the tables, uh, life insurance tables, as well as the uh, data from the U.S. Census Bureau, uh, if you if you hit the age of 70, uh, you have a 20 year life expectancy in the United States. Uh, so uh, the uh, second one is if you're 65 to 80 or 65 to 79, uh, you um, you can go either way. Uh, and, and this is basically basically I think is an admission uh, that the P2 data, P2A data, uh, and the P3 uh, data are probably not ready for prime time yet. We can talk about that. And then if you're over 80, everybody gets a, a tavern. So uh, I suppose we should start with that concept first. Uh, anybody, uh, David, uh, do you have any comments on this? You know, I, uh, I, I have to admit I was a little surprised by him, Joe, um, because I think it, uh, as, as Vino has already emphasized, I mean, we are, all know everybody wants a tavern. And, um, and so to come out uh, with these, you know, recommendations, which really strongly favor SAVR, um, even in patients that are already getting TAVR, um, I, I was a little surprised by it. So. Yeah, me too. Me Catherine, too, Otto is a, Catherine Otto is the chairwoman, and she's a cardiologist. A very good one, I might add. So, um, she's, any, she's better now. Uh, Steve, you have any comments or Pavan? Annie, anybody? Well, you know, I have to say just this discussion, I, as you know, I'm not a Taver Saver guy, but uh, let me be a bad person and say patients don't want heart surgery. They want catheter based therapies. And I think we have to take that into account with all the things that we think about for these patients. Patients are not going to let us beat them over the head and say, this is what the data says. They want catheter based therapy. We just have to be aware of that. Well, I do. I do have a, an issue with these. The first three recommendations that are all class one, there's they give a level of evidence of A, but there's no randomized trial that randomized patients less than 65, 65 to 80, or more than 80. The references listed there from 123 to 125 are meta-analyses of the trials we've been talking about. So how the guideline writers say there's level of evidence A, that someone less than 65 gets surgery, someone 65 to 80 were indifferent and greater than 80 gets TAVA, there's no basis for that. It's consensus, but they put A, and these are guideline documents that everyone around the world is supposed to read and believe. I, I'm actually shocked that we, we have stuff like this in writing. I agree with you, Ani. I think that they jumped the gun a little bit, even on point two here. I think you wait for the low risk data to come out before you make recommendations. Like I don't know. I, I actually agree with David. I, I thought these guidelines, frankly, were more pro saver than I thought they would be. Um, and uh, I, I thought that uh, that they that the uh, ACC presentation, because the journal article wasn't out yet on P3, uh, uh, on P3, uh, the ACC presentation, as well as the as the P2, you know, Vino presented the, the P2 uh, five-year data. I, I think they kind of hedged, they, they, they kind of came back a little bit and are basically waiting for the two, I mean, the three, four, five-year data from the low-risk trials. Yeah. Uh, I, I, I'm surprised. This is more pro-surgery than I thought it was going to be coming out of the ACC and HA. I have to be honest with you, saying anybody under the age of 65, first of all, I'm not sure that there's good, you know, 1A evidence for this, just FYI. Yeah. 
Yeah, I don't the, do point, the point, Vino, is there's no evidence yeah. on which to make these recommendations. Yeah. So, so Cameron, it's not whether it's pro-surgery or pro-TAVA. The question is, is it evidence-based? Level of oh, evidence oh, yeah, is, okay, stop, 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 stop. Hold on. Catherine, go ahead and say your, your piece. Oh, I was going to agree with everyone. I, I, I think <laughs> that uh, I don't disagree with these recommendations, like, anecdotally. I think they are a little more pro-surgery than I expected, but I, I don't think the evidence supports them to this level. So, uh, Wait a second, guys, wait a second. There's not. Nine, we've done more randomized trials in the last 10 years in aortic stenosis. They are Ani, better than others. Ani, than we've ever done with mitral regurgitation for the history of medicine. We haven't done, I mean, somewhere you can we're gonna have I agree with your I, data. I'll take the moderator's prerogative here. I agree with Vino that it's pretty well studied and it's and you're never gonna get anything better studied. I think that these guidelines are pretty good. I think these guidelines are following the data and the data is not is equivocal uh, for uh, uh, some of these uh, subject groups here. So um, yeah, there's one point that we need to make that should be important here in point six. This is again for transfemoral AVR. When we start to talk about alternative access, we're starting to talk about axillary yeah, and, and, you know, transatlantic. Wait a minute, Pavin. So let's just, uh, let's just run this to Pavin right now. Because I and I, we, I know we have Catherine and David and being on the line, and it's a very important. I found that these guidelines were completely dissing uh, alternate access TAVR. Okay, every single thing in here is transfemoral TAVR only. So I almost wonder, does alternate access TAVR even have a place anymore? If you need an alternate access TAVR, should you just get an AVR today? Uh, well, because I don't see a damn, I don't see anything in here that's supportive of alternate access TAVR. Okay, David. So the reason for that are the outcomes are worse with alternative access. But having said that, in, in my own experience in, in our program, the people we're doing alternative access on are really not good open candidates. So I, I personally, I, I think it still has an important role, whether it's transparotid or axillary. We actually even did a transapical there. But uh, I, I think I noticed the same thing, Joe, that it's, there's consistent reference to transfemoral only. But, but I, I think there's clearly a role for, for alternative access. Okay, I'm going to have to take the... Joe, I disagree with you a little bit on that, just to let you know. <laughs> okay, that's all right. I expect it, and uh, I, I, have, I have broad shoulders. So uh, the, uh, But we have to move on to the next one, or we're not going to get it. Next slide. Okay, so these are the chronic AR. Uh, so let's just spend a few minutes on this and move on. Uh, this is for the, the new guidelines for chronic aortic insufficiency. Uh, and I, I, I think that there's a couple of issues, a couple of new things. The first one is, is that the uh, left ventricular ejection fraction for AI was uh, uh, increased, so to speak, for surgery from 50 to 55. Should be noted that the Europeans are using 60. Uh, so that's actually going to bring more patients into the AI fold. Uh, and in asymptomatic patients, uh, as you can see with a bullet with the right with a 2A indication, uh, the LVF is at 55 instead of 60, but also the LVESD, the systolic diameter, came down from 55 to 50 and also included a indexing uh, with an LVESD of greater than 25 millimeters per meter squared. Uh, I tend to use sometimes 22 millimeters per meter squared. Uh, and uh, down below in the 2B, it still has 65 millimeters as an end, end, end diastolic diameter. 
Any comments from any of you on this, on these guidelines? Catherine, anything? I feel like this has changed two or three times throughout my training just to confuse me for board exams, but um, it went up and then it went down and then it went up. Dr. Fullerton actually did my oral board, so thank you for passing me. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> um, you know, I'm interested there's no biomarkers on this slide too. I, I feel like that would maybe be even more useful for AI compared to AS. Um, so it's... Um, I think uh, just as a AI, as an AI expert, I, I find that the con that, that the focus on end systolic diameter is actually really really good, and the defocus on end diastolic diameter is probably a good thing too. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, so uh, I think they're moving in the right direction. Although that unfortunately in the AI aortic valve insufficiency world, data sparse. Steve, you had your hand up. No, no, I disagree. That I think that uh, the biomarkers are going to be actually more important in regurgitant lesions than they are in stenotic lesions. That's, that's a, that's an interesting point. I, 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 I think that's an, that's an important point. Okay. Uh, uh, this, Mark, if you got AI and your LV is 48 millimeters and systolic, you got a problem and it, it should be addressed, right? Unless you're dying from something else. I, I don't even care. I think 50 is even still conservative. I do too. It went from yeah. 55 to 50. And I think the next line is going to be 45. Uh, yep. And the and the uh, LVSD is going to be 22 millimeters per meter squared. Now, listen, I'm tired of seeing AI patients who have EFs of 10 to 15 percent in the clinic. I'm <laughs> tired of it because I can't do a damn thing for them. Whatever we're doing, we're waiting too long to manage these patients. That's why put them on a treadmill. In circulation a few years ago, it's not six months. It's not nine months. It takes five years for the LV to recover. Okay. Yes, I agree. It's 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 bad. Uh, the this is where the guidelines, not just this set, but all the sets, have been deficient. But there's just no data, so it's incumbent upon us academic uh, surgeons to get more to 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 uh, produce more data. Okay. Next slide. This is quickly BAV. Uh, I thought it was interesting. They're both two B indications. That aortic valve repair has a BAV two B indication, and that also TAVI may be used in bi uh, in bicuspid valves. Uh, Vino, do you have any comments on this? I think that you, know, you and, and the guys at Penn and Pavan have really driven this. I think that that's the, the repair for bicuspids is really driven by your institution. I think that's great. And I think that's something that should be more part of the, the recommendations. I really am happy about that. There's not great data on bicuspid and TAVA, and, and TAVA right now. And I'm a little surprised that's, that's in there. But you see the level of evidence is not very good. And the 2B indication, so it's yeah, so I would say I, I, I'd be the devil's advocate. I would say tread carefully, make sure your outcomes are good. This is 2B. Let's not start doing yeah, but I, I, for everybody with bicuspid leaking valve. Right? That, that's what I'm saying. Hopefully, people don't walk away and say, Oh, it's on the guidelines. That That's a mistake. They don't, you know, but just, for, that, just, just for completeness, though, this is the same level of recommendation for the Ross operation. Yeah. So those are the guidelines we have. The ROS has a 2B and a TAVI for a bicuspid aortic valve is also a 2B. Those are the guidelines. Yeah, well, this one, that's why we need to do better. We need to do some randomized trials with ROS. We need to get in there and do something from a surgery point of view. I think it's important to, uh, for, for, the, for the audience uh, across the world uh, to understand that uh, these are 2B indications, but they are new. These are, the new. these are new indications that have never been in the guidelines before. Uh, so that's why I that's why I, I highlight them and that's why they're important. Yeah, that's great. But it's important to understand, just as uh, Zani and Vino say, you know, two B indications are pretty soft, right, Steve? So Joe, I've always thought of two B indications as very Shakespearean. To be or not to be. We have no <laughs> I 
We have no idea. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I love it. Only okay. Steve. Only Steve would know that. <laughs> hey, Joe, it looks like we're at the end of our hour. No, yeah, we're allowed to go. We're allowed to go a little bit more. Next slide. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's go through the mitral guidelines. I've been told by the uh, leadership of the STS I can go another 10 minutes or so. So yeah. mitral guidelines. <laughs> Next one. The paper plus the mitral. <laughs> okay, so um, the mitral guidelines. Uh, Steve, anything new on the mitral guidelines? This is for chronic primary MR. Yeah, no, there's not really new. I mean, it's still in our minds at 60, 50, 40, AFib. People were looking for a left atrial dimension or an index left atrial dimension guideline. I'd like to see that. But, you know, again, in an effort to move people to asymptomatic repair of mitrals. And there's two things, though, that we should think about. One is, I uh, totally agree with you, Steve. Globally speaking, not a lot that's new. But one is, I was interested by this concept of a comprehensive valve center that's more and more emphasized yeah. in the guideline. And the second yeah. is, is uh, mitral clip or edge to edge repair. And again, they say it's for high risk. And I think it's important that we think of it as high or prohibitive risk until we have more data. Um, and I've got to tell you that in our local community, I'm seeing more and more intermediate and occasionally a low risk patient gets a mitral clip, and then I end up reoperating on them. So I think- Yep, I've seen that too. Well, I've reoperated on a fair number of mitral clips gone sideways. These are not, these have been in the indications. This is not new in the indications. But yes, the concept of a valve center and uh, a clip or tear, as we call it now, edge to edge, you know, is an important part of our armamentarium and our toolbox from chronic primary mitral. It's just not, they're not as radical of changes as they were in the aortic space, I think, Steve. Is I agree. Well, well, agree. Actually, Steve, if you take a look at number five, because I was a bit shocked by that one. So number five says if you're asymptomatic with a normal ventricle, so your ventricle, your EF is more than 60, your LV ESD is less than 40. Normal ventricle, asymptomatic, but there's been some increase in size, but you still haven't met that size threshold. It says you can have surgery regardless of whether it's a repair or a replacement. Again, to though, right? That's yeah, but no, it says durable repair. I right, think that's the repair. No, it says irrespective of the probability of a durable repair, because in yeah. all in the previous guidelines, the only context for asymptomatic surgery was either a dilated ventricle, dysfunctional ventricle, or if you can guarantee a repair by 95%. But now the new guidelines are introducing the concept of valve replacement in an asymptomatic patient without ventricular triggers. And that's something very new, which yeah. is There's only well, to most mitral surgeons. The 2A the two talks this is 95%. A, yeah, this is a 2B indication again, with evidence of level C, meaning C, they were drinking a lot of cognac and just came up with this. So that is true. It's a 2B indication, but it is new and it's interesting in a sense. That's why I put the red the red oh, arrow yeah. on it. Uh, yep. And um, uh, it's in interesting to me as an aortic valve surgeon does a lot of AI, is the left ventricular and systolic diameter of greater than 40 millimeters here. Uh, you know, why is it here and not on the aortic valve side? I don't understand. Catherine Otto doesn't like uh, aortic regurgitation as much as she <laughs> likes mitral. <laughs> All right. Uh, let's go to the next slide. So Ani uh, and... Uh, 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 the mitral guys, can you talk to me about this is secondary MR guidelines. Uh, and uh, I found I found this a little bit, you know, this is basically looking at uh, ischemic MR uh, uh, and uh, also the concept of, you know, mitral France versus uh, co-apt uh, and uh, 
it obviously obviously this was a big difference in the guidelines uh, uh, on uh, secondary MR. It was uh, informed by the COAPT and Mitral FR trials as well as the NIH uh, uh, trial regarding replacement versus uh, repair. Uh, can any can you guys comment on on these for our audience uh, out there in the world? Well, I'll, yeah. I'll take the go, go ahead. ahead. I think the number here is 70, right? You got to remember that number. The LV has to be less than 70 millimeters. The PA systolic has to be less than 70. This is the difference between co-op and microFR. They were completely opposite. And yeah, ideally even less than 65 if you look at co-op, right? I mean, I think to indicate, again, talking about lack of a basilar aneurysm, uh, a limited dilatation of the left ventricle, 70 millimeters, um, and then lack of tenting of that anterior leaflet of the mitral valve as well. So again, all, all key factors for durability of repair. And if you need, if you want to look up the reference, I would say look up the annals paper um, that looked at the subgroup of the um, uh, severe MR trial from CTS net that did not have recurrent MR. And if you look at that group, it defines the anatomy perfectly. That's the same group that had that did well and, and, and was the group that was studied in COAPT versus MITRE FR. Okay, that's if you remember that, that's, that's based on 60 patients. True. So, True. you know, we, we hold those opinions most fiercely, those opinions associated with no data. Yeah. That's a good point, Steve, but I just found it very interesting that it, it matched the COAPT patient population, right? Agreed. And we've also I don't disagree. It fails. When the, when the ventricles are giants, Mitral valve repair fails. Open and agreed. Agreed. Yep. Agreed. It doesn't work. And I would even add aortic valve repair fails too. Right? But that's a different topic. Okay, I'd like to take the prerogative here. I want to give you guys a, a question, which I thought was pretty interesting, uh, especially to Ani, if he's still on. There he is. Uh, which was uh, uh, to all of us actually, including uh, including our Shakespearean. Uh, <laughs> if we are going to poo-poo. Anything less than class one indications, why have them? Oh, no, no, we don't poop with them at all. We just put them in context. I think a class one, a class one indication doesn't change with time. It would be very unusual. Class one indications are things that we are very certain about within, within limits. A class two A indication would be something that is probably correct. Then two B is, is, is a bit more vague, but no, they're all important. They all have their place. So we're not, we're not disregarding them, but we're just saying that if you're saying something is class one, you really have to have strong reasons to do that because we can't have the next iteration of guidelines that says something totally different within two, three years. But I also, you see, you see things moving, right? You see things yes. go from 2B to 2A to 1. You see things go from 1 to 2A to 2B. So I think it's important to keep all of them in there to give ideas because people are discussing all of these things that we're talking about. And I think the 2B indications are important, you know, because there, there are a lot of surgeons that practice in a very subspecialized um, expert-based uh, practice. And for them, the, the, the recommendations for them will be different from every, everyone else. So... Okay, well, I, I, I really like the idea that this has become an organic document and that it changes fairly frequently and it changes in response to new data. You know, the guidelines used to be written every 10 to 15 years yeah. and they weren't very helpful. 
I really like that the changes have. And, and yes, it may confuse some people because guidelines change a little bit, but I think it's important that this has become an organic guideline for us. So as I said, we got, I got to take, we have a, two minutes left and I want to ask a couple of, uh, one key question, especially, which is the, which in uh, secondary MR, uh, the, the concept of mitral valve replacement with portal sparing uh, versus repair. Those questions are coming up. Uh, Steve, you want to comment and Annie after that? And Pavin? So, you know, obviously the answer is clear as mud on what to do for these patients, but I think we have learned some things from a lot of studies in that if you're gonna do surgery around these patients, there are some indications where you absolutely should not repair, you know, reverse angulation of the posterior leaflet, gigantic ventricles and so on like that. And if you're going to repair, use a small rigid uh, ring. And that's about the most I can say right now. Annie? I think Vino hit on it earlier when he said, we as surgeons have not done the studies and have not provided data. So we're, we've lost this game. You can see 2A is just transcatheter. The other 2A on the bottom is someone having bypass surgery, which really isn't important. But apart from that, the rest of surgery is 2B or, or worse. And it will never change because we have never demonstrated that surgery in functional MR is beneficial to the patient. And it will never happen. So unfortunately, it's going to be catheter going forward for secondary MR. I don't see how that can change because it will be very hard for us as surgeons to provide the evidence to, to show. Sonny, I think you're right. Today, I did two tendine valves for FMR, right? I mean, in, in those patients, probably back in the day, there would have been reduced surgeries, but I would have probably done them open. Yeah. And now they go into a different pathway. You know, I think we I think we lost the vote in one key area, and that was as surgeons, we were so focused on the annular level and the valvular level, we forgot about the subannular uh, repair techniques, and yeah. that's probably what would have been important for uh, repairing. I, I, I think, Pavan, we forgot that we're comparing ourselves to medical therapy. So we just assumed, yeah. like Dr. Bolin told us for years, that it cures everything. We even thought it could cure cancer. So we just kept repairing all these functional valves. I mean, Dr. Bowling used to say, find it, fix it, ring it, and all that. That's all we did. We never did any studies that compared it to medical Steve, it's therapy. your fault. Ani just said it's your but, fault. He just yes, said that is. on live webinar. Shit. All right, guys. Well, listen, we can keep on going on and on and on. I have a lot of uh, questions about, uh, uh, about the fact that the guidelines did not address the maze procedure in the mitral space, uh, especially since it has, you know, 80% effectiveness and there's no real added risk. Uh, so, uh, We'll have to uh, shelve that to the next time, Pavan, when yeah, you're working on this, Joe. Stay tuned for, for the ACC and the new Journal of Medicine. Layout okay, great. Going to be Joe, this is a, what a great idea. Answers there around left atrial appendage occlusion. Mark, yeah. we'll have you back for that next conversation. All right. And last, this is where, bowling. I want you to ask, answer this really quickly. This is from, uh, from, from Europe. I believe that there is a contraindication for uh, class three for MVR in case of repairable mitral valve. I think that's only for, uh, for degenerative. It's not for secondary, correct? Yeah, that's correct. Correct. Okay, so that's the answer for everybody there. Uh, Steve, that's from Steve Bowling. Ani, you agree with that? Yes, I do, yeah. Okay. Well, listen, everybody, I want to I thank the panel uh, for an outstanding uh, uh, session. I want to tell everybody on the, uh, on the line that uh, a recording of this webinar will be available on the STS YouTube channel uh, in a few days. Uh, so you can look uh, look it up because I know some people uh, said in the chat room that they wanted to ask that question. Uh, and uh, 
I, uh, uh, I just want to thank the STS uh, for allowing us to do this. Uh, it was very interesting and I learned a lot myself. I also want to uh, thank Pavanat Lurie's workforce uh, on adult cardiac surgery uh, at the STS because they're the ones who are sponsoring this. So thank you, Pavan, Dr. Atluri. Uh, and I want to thank the panel uh, for joining us and giving us their input on, this, on these very important topics. We actually had an entire second, uh, uh, fourth paper that we didn't get to because we just ran out of time. So thank you all very much. We'll, be back. And we'll sign out for the STS. Thank you. Thank you, everyone. Thank you. Good night. Joe and all the STS staff. Thank you to Bavaria and thank you to all our panelists today for your participation and insight. We invite you to become a member of STS if you're not one already. You'll enjoy a variety of benefits and opportunities to help you grow professionally, plus discounts on educational offerings like this course. Learn more at sts.org membership. Delve into the extraordinary content from STS 2021 with annual meeting online and get 360-degree views while luminary surgeons operate with the immersive video experiences. Each product can be purchased individually, or you can buy them together at a special bundled rate. STS members save even more. Learn more at sts.org slash amoimmersives. Please join us for the next two webinars in our 2021 series. First up on May 6 will be the topic, Sedate or Cannulate? ECMO Strategies During COVID. Two weeks after that, on May 20, we will be discussing the resilient surgeon, strategies to be your best self in and out of the OR no matter what. Thank you all and good night.